The reading today is Isaiah chapter 46. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. The idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel. You whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god. And they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. Remember this, keep it in mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said that I will bring about, what I have planned that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near, it is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Well, we're starting a series today uh, called Grace in the City. And this series is about the central vision and the key values of our church, our vision and values. Now, why are we doing this? I think it's vital to do this every so often because we need to be reminded and to remind each other of what this church stands for, what we're all about. What is our heartbeat? What makes Grace Church tick? Why do we do things the way we do? Why are there some things that we emphasize a lot, such as the centrality of the gospel, the importance of community, the priority of mission? We emphasize these things, but there are other things that you might have felt more important in other churches, but we hold them with an open hand, and we agree to disagree on them. Why are we like that? Now, whatever point you're at in your relationship to our church, this is an important exercise to step back every so often and think about our vision and values. If you're new, and many of you are quite new to this church, you want to know what it's all about, don't you? And we owe you an explanation. The last time we did a series on the vision of this church was in 2012. And the church has grown and changed massively in the time since then. In fact, to be a substantially new congregation. Now, if you've been here a bit longer and you're part of the furniture, it's very helpful to, to have a refresher on our core vision and values and take stock, especially, I think, at the start of a new year. How are you relating to the values we're going to hold forth personally? How are you relating to them? Do you need to make any New Year's resolutions? And if you're a leader in this church, then you need to hear it too. You know, we have so many leaders. You're a powerful agent, if you're a leader, in transmitting vision 
and values. Here's some leaders. Leaders of setup teams. Leaders of catering and hospitality. Leaders, we've got a leader of welcome, a leader of projection, a leader who runs the equipment on Sunday mornings, leaders of creche, kids club, youth work, leaders of missions and church planting, band leaders, meeting leaders, life group leaders, leaders of student work and the international beginners group, elders, deacons, leaders of leaders. We've got leaders coming out of every pore. You need to be able to articulate and embrace and promote our vision and values, I think. So we aim to do this, to have this series on, on our vision and values for six weeks, starting today, teaching through passages of Scripture that best uh, capture those, that value. And this isn't a repeat of old material. It's quite a refinement based on seven years of uh, ministry in this church. Uh, so some fresh emphases will come out. Grace in the city. Uh, what, what does it mean to be the people who are marked by grace in this city, Manchester. What effect does the grace of God have on us? What kind of people does it make us? What does it do to our lives? I want to try and inspire you to live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ in this city in this year. And the vision and values can be summed up in a really simple diagram, which I've actually stolen from somebody else. I didn't want you to think there's anything original here. This is from a guy called Bruce Wesley. I don't think he was a relation to John and Charles Wesley, but you never know. Bruce Wesley produced this wonderful, very simple, beautifully simple diagram. It was worth stealing. And here it is, transformed by our very own Dan Collins into a, a beautiful slide. It, this, uh, you'll be seeing this a few times in the next few weeks. This sums it up the values and the vision of the church. At the center of it is the gospel, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. A news report about that and the implications of what that means for the whole world, for the whole of history, and for our individual lives. And that gospel uh, has impact in several directions. It has an impact in forming people into community. People don't just pray a prayer and go on as they were before. When they come to know the gospel, they are actually bonded into the people of God and become part of Jesus' family. We actually become a community. So gospel has that kind of horizontal axis, engaging us with each other. It also, though, it doesn't just form us into communities, which could be quite sort of inward-looking. It also sends us out. The gospel propels us out like a force, a dynamic centrifugal force flinging us out onto mission to share the good news with the world and to serve the world. So the gospel has an impact both in forming in community and inspiring and energizing into mission. But even more important than those two things, even more important, the most important axis is that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, actually enables us to worship God aright. So the most important axis here is the one pointing up, worship. The gospel makes us true worshippers. So what is the highest purpose and the ultimate aim of our church? What is the highest purpose, the ultimate aim? In a, in a word, it is worship. It is worship. That's what we're all about. Grace Church, Manchester, exists to make worshippers, to bring people to worship God and help each other to do that. This is what the gospel produces. 
true worshippers. Now, Jesus once was traveling, and he was very thirsty, and he was in a region called Samaria. He went to a well, and there he bumped into a woman, and they had a fascinating conversation. It turned into a theological discussion, and at one point, Jesus says these words. Here they are. A woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, that's God, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, focusing on this, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. Now, this is a very important passage. You see what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, this is really important. We just gloss over it. You probably, many of you are familiar with it. The kind of worshippers that the Father seeks. You see what he's saying? God, the living God, God the Father, seeks worshippers. That's what he wants. And the true worship that's acceptable to him comes in the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to worship God properly. And what is this time that has now come that Jesus is talking about? He's talking about the, the era, the, world, the phase in world history that has now arrived because Jesus Christ has come into this world, the only begotten, eternal Son of God. He brings the truth that makes this kind of worship possible. Now, just bring this all together. All three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, are involved in this project of turning human beings, people like you and me, into true worshippers. That's what God wants. And this should be of no surprise. If you read your Bible, you see it's full of commands to worship, instructions on how to worship. Worship starts at the beginning, and right at the end of the Bible, you have a great vision in the book of Revelation. And what is it? It's a vision of people worshipping God. Back to our triangle. Everything else points to this. Oh, I haven't gone back to the triangle. Let's go back to it. There we are. So, what that means... And this is something that we haven't probably said very explicitly in our church before. Community, which is so important, is not an end in itself. It is an aid to worship. We meet in community to help create worship. Mission, as important as it is, mission to reach the world, to reach the nations. It's important, but it is not an end in itself. The goal of mission is to bring people to worship the living God. And even the gospel itself, the glorious good news, is not ultimate in this sense. The gospel exists to take away our sins, put us in right standing with God, to save sinners, to make peace with God. But what's the point of it? It's to restore us to a relationship so we can do what we were made for, to worship God. So worship's pretty important. Do you agree? You with me so far? Our first value, our first part of our vision is, the, is worship. So what is it? Here's a, another text. This is from Romans chapter 12. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, and he's spent 11 chapters packing, unpacking what God's mercy is. In view of all that mercy, what are you got to do? 
offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. It seems strange, doesn't it, to say that you've got to offer your body as a living sacrifice and that that is worship. It's not talking about physical sacrifice. It's a way of saying everything you are. Everything you are. Worship means all of you coming in, all of you living all for God. Worship means giving Jesus Christ his rightful place over the whole of life. And Paul says here, firstly, you give everything you have and everything you are to God, and then he unpacks it in verse 2. It means having a transformed new mind that figures out how to please God and obeys him and lives that kind of life. So what is worship? It's about what you love. It's about the person or the thing that commands your ultimate love. The love that shapes your life. The love that commands your loyalty. The love that commands your affections. The love that commands your service. The English word worship originally comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Worth-ship, which means whatever you think is worthy, you ascribe worth to it. So, friends, what is most worthy to you today? What is most worthy? That is the thing that you get, or the person that you give worship to. And the thing you give your worship to is your ultimate love and the thing that shapes your life. It's so important. Now, what we can immediately see here is that there are some things that are commonly in the Christian world, commonly talked about as worship, that are not the whole story. One of them is singing and musical worship, and that is clearly part of worship in the Bible, but it's certainly not the whole story. So we need to try not to talk about the band leader as the worship leader, as though that's the only thing we're doing that's worship. You can see here that worship is much more comprehensive. Another way we talk about worship is at Sunday worship, coming to, together as a body, corporate. Where everything we're doing here today is worship, and that's true. That is definitely included in worship, but as you can see, worship is much broader and more comprehensive than that. And even having an experience of God, even an encounter with God himself, an ex, even an ecstatic experience, although it can be worship, is not the whole story. Worship is bigger, it's more comprehensive, it's about your ultimate love, the thing that you serve, the thing that you adore, the thing that commands your loyalty. Now, this is so important because if you choose to worship Jesus Christ, to make him your ultimate love, then whatever else happens, you will be a winner in life. Whatever else happens. But if you make anything or anyone else your ultimate love, you will be a loser. Those stakes are very high. If you worship Jesus Christ, then he can give you the meaning, the purpose, the value, the fulfillment, the forgiveness, the future, all the things that your heart craves. But anyone else will disappoint you. If you worship Jesus, he can carry you in his great arms of love and bear the burdens of your life. But anything else, you will end up carrying and you'll find it an unbearable burden. 
It's that important. It's that important. So for this reason, our church is all about worship because this is what we were made for. And the temptation in, in our lives and in every generation is that we will always, always want to lock our ultimate love onto something other than Jesus. Things that you can see, things that you can touch, things that you can smell and taste, things that are immediately available and tangible, things that the culture and the world around you holds out as ultimate loves. Those things we will always be tempted to grip, grip onto and to set our hearts on. So at the beginning of this new year, we have a choice to make, friends. And the choice is this. What are you going to set your heart on this year? What are you going to set your ultimate love on? Now in the Bible, the choice between worshipping the one true God as our ultimate love, the one true God, or other false gods is presented most powerfully by the prophet Isaiah. So turn back with you to Isaiah chapter 46. And here on page 734, we read Isaiah's amazing, dynamite, blow your hair back, poetic account of the difference between serving the true God and worshipping idols. Just two points today. One, the gods who let us down. And two, the God who lifts us up. The gods that let us down and the God who lifts us up. Read with me, will you, verse 1 and 2. Bel bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome. A burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Now, who are Bel and Nebo, for goodness sake? These are the chief gods of Babylon. Babylon was a place that God's people found themselves when they went into exile. It was a, a, a region to the east of Israel, and they were going to be living in Babylon, which was the center of the world power, the most powerful culture in the world. And this culture had many gods, and all of their neighbors worshipped them, and that was what everybody considered normal. But chief among these gods were Bel and Nebo. Bel was the patron. He's the kind of boss god. Bel's the, uh, the king of the gods. And Nebo was his eldest son. He was the secretary of the divine council. So these two top dogs or top gods represent the ideals of the culture. And the official line was that those were the gods that would establish Babylonia as the leading power in the world. You could rely on them. They would establish it. And we even see their names in the Bible, their names influencing the names that were chosen in that world. King Nebuchadnezzar, those of you who remember that name, his first part of his name comes from Nebo. And he gave the Jewish man, Daniel, another name. It was Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar, using the name of the god Bel. Now, in the, the, the world of that time, an annual New Year festival was held in which there was a great parade, like a carnival, kind of festival atmosphere. A great parade and a procession was carried out, and they brought the, the images, the statues of these gods out of the temple and marched them all around the city in a grand parade, reminding everybody of the beliefs of the people and hoping that these would bring them good luck. But what does Isaiah see? 
Isaiah doesn't see Bel and Nebo boldly leading the way into the future. He sees them wearying the poor ox or donkeys or animals that are dragging them around the city. He says, Bel is barely standing upright. Nebo's stooping low. The idols are borne by beasts of burden. You've got a poor animal lugging this huge, great statue around. And he's looking at it and thinking, whoa, those poor creatures. They can barely carry the heavy load. Now, some scholars may think that Isaiah might even have been envisaging a future when Babylon was going to be defeated. Because he says they themselves go off into captivity. If that's the case, then these idol statues have been rescued from the temple and people are loading them onto ox carts and trying to get out of town to stop them being stolen. In other words, the gods that they look to to save them need to be saved. But here's the obvious point. If a god has to be carried, can it carry you? If a god needs your strength, can it give you strength? They can't. These gods are a burden. They need saving. They can't carry you. They can't carry the weight of the people's hopes. They can't carry the weight of our lives. They themselves are a burden, and they actually crush those who serve them. They're heavy, false saviors who drain life and energy out of their followers. So why would anyone fall for such false gods? Because they're seductive. Look with me at verse 6. Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. You see, the very finest things, the very finest precious metals are being used here. People are sacrificing in order to make these things. They're calling in a goldsmith, a craftsman, who uses all his art to make this beautiful statue. In other words, the created things like gold and silver that God has given, which are good, precious, and beautiful, people are using them in service of a lie and saying, well, that's going to be the thing that saves me. I'm going to worship and follow that. People take these created things and twist them and pervert them and distort them into a false god. And it's very seductive. And that is the same with every idol. A good thing, but turned into an ultimate love, becomes deadly. A good thing turned into an ultimate thing becomes deadly. Idols promise to give us everything, but then they take everything from us. And in their wake, we're left crushed and wounded. And you know, it's the same for us today. We may be more sophisticated than to put our hopes in a handmade image, but our hearts are no different. We always tend to exchange the truth of God for a lie and to worship and serve the created things rather than the creator. So let me ask you, as we have this pause for reflection at the start of the year, what created things are you tempted to worship and put your trust in? What created things are you tempted to worship and put your trust in? Now surely one thing that must be very high up the list in our culture is sex. C.S. Lewis once said that if you were visiting a culture, imagine you were an alien or you're from Mars and you just, you know, a spaceman coming down, and you went into his culture and they had this, this hall with darkened, a darkened room and lights shining on it. Somebody comes out with a big platter, silver platter with a big 
kind of cover on it. And they had this big dance and some kind of sexy music. And they're waving these veils and pulling them away. And eventually, they lift up the platter. And underneath it, in all its nakedness, is a pork chop. You would think, There's some, this culture's got something wrong about food. Yeah? They made a bit of a, too much of a song and dance about it. In our culture, surely sex is that pork chop. <laughs> there was an advertising campaign for Uncle Ben's microwave rice that basically promised that the time saved by using the microwave and not having to boil water, would translate into time spent in passionate sex with supermodels. I don't know how many of Uncle Ben's customers found that work for them. But you see how sex is held out as this ultimate thing, an ultimate love. And so the culture is absolutely saturated with the idea that sexual experience can make your life perfect, fulfilled, happy, and worthwhile. Now, that is a promise of salvation, isn't it? What a hope. But can sex bear the weight of all that hope? Of course it can't. How ridiculous. This is why people are simultaneously addicted to images of sex and disappointed with the reality of it. This is why the porn industry apparently generates many billions of dollars in revenue every year Billions of dollars being spent on pornography, yet most of the newspapers and magazines you see in the supermarket are full of advice for people with problem sex lives. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are born by beasts of burden. And there's a gold and silver factor in here, something that's created and good. Sex is precious, it's very beautiful. It's created by the good God to give joy, satisfaction, in a cross-gender, lifelong, covenanted relationship. And in such a relationship, it can soar. But taken out, put on a pedestal as a savior, come on. Now we could spend all day and all the next week thinking about the various idols that there are. Money, family, comfort, power, control. The list goes on and on because any created thing that we use to replace God in our lives becomes an idol. Any created thing. John Calvin said that man's nature was a permanent factory of idols. God's that let us down. So let me ask you, Christian friends, do you yet know your own heart? Got some young people here, some high school guys, year seven, eights, nines, tens, and elevens. Guys, do you yet know your heart? Do you know what your heart is drawn to to think that that will be the thing that solves everything for you? That could be the idol. And part of being a Christian and part of growing as a Christian is starting to see these things and deal with them. What are the idols that you are drawn to, friends? Maybe I'll put it like this. What makes you heavy and burdened? Could that be an idol? A false God? Lets you down? What is it that brings you such fear and anxiety? Takes away your sleep. Takes away your joy. Could it be that's an idol? 
What is it perhaps that's making you depressed? Depression, one person said, is the common cold of mental illness. It's all over the place. Many causes, many different kinds of depression, but some depression comes from idol worship. Are you starting to learn the, the character and the culture of your own heart? Trace it back to the roots. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Isaiah spends so long on this. He, he doesn't want us to move on until we've understood idols are basic to our daily lives. But we're blind to them and we've got so familiar with them. We need each other's help, friends, to see through those sham claims of the idols of our hearts and to see with fresh clarity that God is our only hope. And that's my final point. Look to the God who lifts us up. He carries us. Just look at him, how utterly different he is from everything else around. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. This is God speaking. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried you since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. How about that for a lot of eyes? Very emphatic. He's saying, put those stupid things aside. I'm the one and the only one who will sustain you, carry you, rescue you, and be there for you. Amen? That's God. You know, Joe Byrne, the proud father, sent us some photos and a little video of his new daughter. He's absolutely smitten, quite obviously. And seeing this video of this tiny little tot, I don't know, six, seven pounds or something? Six pounds seven, there's the proud granddad again. Six pounds seven. I mean, I can put on six pounds seven in a single meal. <laughs> this tiny little person lying in a cot, you know, this lying out like, totally trusting, arms like this. And occasionally just kind of going, <laughs> you know, and I know that's wind, experienced parent. And just lying there, you know, feel like going to the toilet? Just do it. <laughs> just lying there. Joe and Gail will pick up the tab. Hungry? <laughs> Anytime, day or night, you just cry. And that tiny little baby, absolutely and utterly dependent upon Joe and Gail in every part. And we know they're there for her, don't we? She just has to cry, and there they are. And Gail's there, exhausted, still feeding. Cracked nipples, still feeding. And Joe's there, bleary-eyed. They're there for her. And God himself says in this very tender image, this very maternal image, God is the father, but here he even presents himself in, in, like a mother. Uh, it, I've upheld you since you were born, since you were just a tiny little tot. Even, even before that, when you were conceived, I, I was there. I've sustained your whole life ever since you were born. And I've carried you since then. Very tender. God has got you in his hands. And then we think about the other end of life, which comes way too quickly, doesn't it? When you've got gray hairs, if you've got any hairs left. And you're start, your sight is failing. And you have, oh dear, back pain in the morning. And when the weather changes, I can feel my ankle. And he says, even until your gray hairs, to your old age, he will never let you go. Donald Lees, he will never let you go, brother. There's a man who knows the gospel. 
I will sustain you, he says. I've carried you your whole life long. This is the God we come to. There never was a time when he wasn't with you. There never will be a time when he won't be there. You know, we talk often in this church about the Narnia books. They're so full of wisdom. There's one of the books, I think it's called The Horse and His Boy. And the sort of Jesus figure appears as a lion, or sometimes as a kind of cat. But he's, he comes, comes in and out of the story at unexpected times. And there's one time where the boy is riding the horse in the dark through a forest in a strange land, and he's lost, and he's absolutely afraid and terrified. And he doesn't know if he's going to be caught and in, in trouble or in danger. And he's riding along, it, and, and suddenly something happens that makes him even more terrified because he becomes aware of an enormous creature walking alongside him. And he can hear the breath of this massive beast. And he's absolutely terrified out of his wits because he realizes it's a huge lion. And he just quietly rides the horse all, day, all night long. And the lion never says anything, never does anything. It's just there. And then in the morning, it's gone. And then he realizes all night long, the lion was protecting him. It was there. Even when he didn't know what it was, even when he didn't know who it was, even when he didn't know what it was doing, he is always with you. So where else will you turn? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Just think about, if you're a Christian here, think about your walk with the Lord Jesus. Remember the times you've cried out and he heard you. How quick we are to forget. Remember the ways, countless ways he has, he has blessed you and served you and cared for you. Remember the answered prayers. Sometimes you gave up praying, he still answered. Remember the whole of the Bible's record from Abraham or even from Noah to Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets to Israel to the church and now to us. Thousands and thousands of years of God's faithfulness to his people. What a track record he has. And even now, at this moment, you can stop and recognize that Jesus Christ is present here by the power of his spirit, and he makes you an offer. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A rest that you'll never find anywhere else, and a rest from one who is utterly trustworthy because he can carry you. Maybe you're a person here who's been on the fence and kind of on the brink of becoming a Christian for some time. Will you trust him today? Come to him. Say to him, I will follow you even, even though I don't know where you're going. And give him your heart and life. Ask him to accept you and to, that his sacrifice would count for you because he loves you. He lifts us up. He lifts us up because he's a sovereign. Verse 10, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come, I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God speaks and he, his will is done. He's the king. He's sovereign. But he's also a savior. Verses 11 to 13. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, you who are now far from my righteousness. 
I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away, and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. Who is this bird of prey, this person coming from the east? Well, in the, the, the time of Isaiah, or soon after, it was a man called Cyrus. Isaiah speaks of him in chapter 45, a frightening warlord who was going to come and destroy and break the power of Babylon. God even calls him my Messiah. He's going to bring the smackdown on Babylon and all its proud cruelty through this guy Cyrus, not a believer in God, but still in God's rule over the politics of this world, somebody who was going to effect justice. Isaiah says, God is summoning this man from the east, from far off, a man to fulfill God's purpose. But you know what? We know someone better. Not a man from the east, but a man from heaven. Not Cyrus, but Jesus, who came not to bring judgment, but to receive judgment on himself. And at his cross, to take the penalty and the punishment due to our sin and wrongdoing. That's who we look to. That's who God has summoned for us. The one who is worthy of all our hearts' love and worship. So who will get your uh, ultimate love in 2017? Who will get your ultimate love? Who will get the worship of your heart this year? An old Welsh preacher once talked about his hero. He said when he was a boy of about 12... He said, I had a great hero. My hero was a local sportsman who achieved the rare distinction of playing rugby for his country and played cricket to county standard. I so admired this man. I papered the walls of my bedroom with press cuttings and photographs, and I loved to talk about him and to hear about his exploits. He was my great hero. And then when I was 14, I actually got to know my hero personally. He was a keen fisherman. I used to go fishing with him. On those occasions, I was able to observe him from an entirely different viewpoint and got to know the man and not merely the image. And then the preacher paused and looked at his congregation and he said, with an air of authority, the nearer I got to my hero, the smaller he became. He told how he discovered the true character of the man whose public image had captivated him and how he'd been deeply disappointed. But then he continued... God eventually led that disappointed schoolboy to a new hero. And I have walked with my Jesus for 35 years now. And in that time, I have often disappointed him, but he has never disappointed me. I have got to know him better, and the nearer I get, the bigger he becomes. So friends, let's make 2017 the year of true worship. The year when we draw near to Jesus Christ. Let's stir each other up in this. Let's draw near. We can't do it alone, but help each other to read our Bibles every day, to pray continually, to commit to being part of a Christian community, and to speak of Jesus often. Simple things, easily crowded out. But when we do them, these necessary things, we will become true worshippers, and we will find our lives are restored to what they were meant to be. Will you commit to that? As we come to the Lord's table in a minute, Rich is going to lead us in that. Let's reflect on our lives, the past year, things we need to repent of and turn from, and recommit to this glorious great Savior, the God who lifts us up.
Let's pray. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born, even to your old age and gray hairs. I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Gracious Lord, we want to bring you the praise of our hearts this day. You're worthy of all of it and much, much more. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. And yet, you love to hear us come to you. You love to hear us, our prayers, and you bid us enter your presence. Father, we ask that you'd renew our hearts now and transform our thinking so that we can discern your will for our lives for this week, this month, this year, that we might live more wholly in your will, that we might indeed offer our whole lives to you as a living sacrifice, as a true and acceptable worship. We want to be good and, and pleasing and perfect for you, Lord, so please help us in that. And thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the glory of his gospel. Amen.